In the meantime, we're going to be studying, uh, beginning our study of the book of Titus. So you can please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, uh, I think you can see. If you have one of those little pew Bible things there, it's page 938, so you can hunt that up. We took a little break from what are called the pastoral epistles during the month of December, and we spent our time looking at some of the Psalms. Well, today we return to those pastoral epistles, and as we do, I'll I'll just remind you of a couple of things. Number one, if you're not familiar, an epistle is just a fancy-sounding word. It means a letter. And so these were some letters, pastoral letters, that the Apostle Paul, he would write three of them, that the Apostle Paul would write to some young pastors. Paul is an older guy, writing to these younger men, encouraging them, giving them some direction, assigning to them certain tasks and the like. And again, we call those the pastoral epistles. Now those two young men that he wrote to are the men Timothy and Titus. And Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. We call them First and Second Timothy. And the third he wrote to this guy, Titus, which was what, is what now we're going to begin studying. That may come as a little bit of a surprise. You think, oh, wait a minute, we did First Timothy. Why aren't we picking up with Second Timothy? Why are we skipping that book and jumping to Titus? Well, I'll say this. We are going to go back to Second Timothy. But we're skipping it for a particular purpose because the material, if you will, that is found in Titus is much more akin to the material in 1 Timothy than it is to 2 Timothy. And so for sort of a context of things, it sort of makes sense for us to deal with that material before moving on to the new material that Paul introduces in the second book, the book that we call 2 Timothy. So the subject and the timing of Titus comes right in line with, goes right in line with the material from 1 Timothy. So we're going to see, if you were with us or if you studied this book before, there's a lot of similarity between 1 and 2 Timothy. They're both written to young pastors, and by that we're talking about 30s probably, both written to young pastors by the Apostle Paul. They served as apprentices to the Apostle Paul. They traveled with the Apostle Paul. They were given ministry opportunities by the Apostle Paul. And now they're being placed in a situation where, okay, you're going to be in charge there. And Paul writes these letters to them for that particular purpose, the ministry efforts that each of them are going to begin. As I said, they were both young pastors, and the ministry efforts they were going to begin were going into it, going to have their challenges. Paul knew it, Timothy knew it, Titus knew it. Like, I'm not sending you into some easy situation. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. Here's some of the things the letters talk about. Here's what you're going to need to deal with. And here's some of the people you're going to need to deal with, or at least the type of people you're going to need to deal with. And so that's a lot of the similarity between the books. Now, there's a number of differences, and there's a key difference between the books as well, and we'll come to that uh, in a few moments. But let me begin. I'm just going to read the first four verses of the book of Titus. It says, Now Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you can see the book is written to this fellow by the name of Titus. It's interesting to note that such an important individual, Titus, is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Acts. If you don't know anything about the book of Acts, the book of Acts follows the Gospels. The Gospels look at the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the next book is the book of Acts. And that provides for us, similar to the Gospels, sort of a following of the life, not of Jesus in this instance, but the work of Jesus through his servants, uh, the apostles and others. And so it provides a history for us of the first century church. It covers a period of about 25 to 30 years, immediately following the death and the resurrection of Christ. It carries on for about 30 years. And it's 28 chapters, which means it doesn't tell us every single thing that happened during those first 30 years, but you have a lot of details and a lot of information. And we learn, we see people and what they're doing and the ministry they're involved with. And we look at people like Barnabas and Paul and Peter and John and others. And they're involved and they're doing their thing. So it's a little bit surprising that you have a guy like Titus who right toward the end of the book, it's, it's just after the book ends, is placed in charge of an island, a whole con series of congregations. And he's never mentioned in the book of Acts. For whatever reason, he's not. One commentator I read suggested, maybe I read into it a little, but he suggested that Titus's brother was Luke, and brothers hate their brothers, and so he wasn't putting them in the book. I don't know if that's true, um, but that was an interesting theory, perhaps there. But he's strangely absent uh, in the book of Acts. We do know, however, from reading other passages of the New Testament, those letters that uh, are scattered throughout the New Testament, we do know that many of the events that are talked about in the book of Acts, Titus was involved in them. His, just, his name just wasn't mentioned uh, in his involvement there. So this fellow Titus, he's mentioned 10 times in the book of 2 Corinthians, played a significant role in that church. They knew his name and the, the task that he had for there. He's mentioned twice in the book of Galatians, and he's mentioned one additional time in the book of 2 Timothy. And so he's all around, and he's involved in the life of the first century church, the early church. Here's some of the things we learn about Titus from elsewhere in the scripture. First thing we learn is he had a very special relationship with the apostle Paul. Now, Paul loved the people that he ministered to, but Paul was especially connected with a few different people. Silas, we learned that he had a special connection with and did a lot of ministry with. We learned already about Timothy and that relationship he had, ministry relationship he had with Timothy and, and beyond ministry. And we see that he had that same relationship with Titus. He calls him his son, not his biological son, but his son in the faith, if you will. He said the same thing of Timothy, but this is what first, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 4 says, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Now, some have suggested what that means is that Paul led Titus to the Lord, and that may be. Paul traveled around and led a lot of people to the Lord, and it wasn't uncommon. It wasn't that common, but it wasn't unheard of that a person would come to faith, and he said, can I come with you and help you in any way? Sure, come along. You know, there's room on the boat, uh, and so on. And so some have suggested what Paul means is he led Titus to the faith, he led Timothy to the faith, and they were his sons in the faith. It may mean that. What it definitely means is there was a special affinity of relationship. 
Paul saw himself in a very special way taking Titus alongside of himself and pouring himself into Titus like a dad might do with his son, but not with the kid down the street. Does that make sense? You with me? And so Titus and Paul had a very special fatherly son mentor type relationship. Second thing, this is what we learned from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There, Paul doesn't just think of uh, Titus as his son, but there he thinks of him as, as his own brother. And he says in that 2 Corinthians passage, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel to you, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus. And again, not talking about his biological brother, but a commonality of relationship. Paul didn't see himself up here and Titus down there. He was his brother in the faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, a little later in that same book, he calls Titus my partner and my fellow worker, which speaks to this idea that he had a great deal of respect for Titus and the ministry work that Titus was doing. Solomon as a fellow worker. We learn from the book of Galatians is that Titus, unlike Timothy and unlike Paul, was not a Jew or partially Jewish, but that he was a full-blooded Gentile. In the book of Galatians, he's referred to as being a Greek. It says there, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, though he was a Gentile, though he was a non-Jew. And those, those men were not circumcised in that day. And so there's a context to it. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the book of Galatians. But the point is simply is he is a Gentile. We learn from the book of Acts, though his name is not mentioned in the book of Acts, that Paul brought Titus with him. Paul and Barnabas, Acts chapter 15, go down to Jerusalem because this movement developed in the early church that if you want to be a good Christian, you've got to become a Jew as well. And so they, they were called the, the circumcision party. They wanted to make all these Gentiles become Jewish as well by getting circumcised. And as you can imagine, the, the work of God among the Gentile men was slowing considerably. Uh, and Paul's like, no, that's not just a problem because it's wrong. You're interrupting the truth of the gospel. You're, sell, you're telling people they can be saved if they do this. But the scripture teaches there's nothing you can do to contribute to your salvation. It's all Christ. And, and Paul was adamant against this theory, this idea, this teaching. And so Paul decides, and they're like, well, you're, you're just Paul. He says, all right, fine. Who do I need to talk to to get you know, verification for this? I'll go down to the apostles if you want. He goes all the way down to Jerusalem from where he was in Europe, essentially. He goes down to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and they bring some others with them as proof of this reality that a Gentile can become a Christian and be a pretty good one. And one of the men that they bring with them is Titus. And we know that the Acts passage, it's Acts chapter 15. This is what commonly is referred to as the Jerusalem Council, where they were going to determine this question. It says, now, but some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, you say, well, that doesn't say Titus's name. How do you know it was him? I don't know if you have that bad attitude, but I'm, I'm putting that in your heart here. If you look over at Galatians, Paul talks about that council, and he does name names, and particularly Titus. 
So in Galatians, Paul says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And so what Acts calls and some of the others, the book of Galatians names at least one of them, and that is Titus. And so Titus comes with, listen to this, this is amazing. He, he's brought as exhibit A. This is what a good Gentile believer looks like. And here's a fellow that's walking with the Lord and hasn't been circumcised and isn't adopting, becoming a Jew just so he could be a good Christian. And he proves his point by showing them Titus. Titus would go on to be one of Paul's most trusted assistants. Now, I mentioned in the beginning that the events of the book of Titus, it comes pretty much at the same time as the events of 1 Timothy. And that book was written around the year 62 or 63 A.D. Paul would die around the year 68 or so, 69 A.D. And so these are books that are coming out right toward the end of the Apostle Paul's life. And he writes this book and the book of 1 Timothy around 62, 63. You remember, if you were with us or you've read it, that the book of 1 Timothy, Paul writes that to Timothy because he's sending him or, or leaving him in the city of Ephesus. And he said, look, I can't stay with you. i got to be somewhere else. But you go to Ephesus, and here's what I want you to do when you get there. I'll write it down for you because you'll probably forget. And so he writes him a book, the book of 1 Timothy. Paul couldn't be there. We learned that Paul had to be elsewhere. In that chapter, it tells us he had to be in Macedonia, where, whereas Timothy was sent to Ephesus. Well, the book of Titus, same idea. Paul sends Titus to a place called Crete, a little island nation not too far from where Ephesus was, where Macedonia was, because Paul had to be somewhere else. And tell us where uh, in that particular book. So I love maps, and so let's put a little map up here. There's our first map. This is a map of Europe, essentially, and uh, Western Asia, uh, and so on. And whenever you're looking at a map, you find a point of reference that you can work off of, right? And what do we? We find the boot. And we all know where the boot is or what a boot looks like. And so we find the boot, and the boot is Italy. Look at you guys. You learned that. All right? And so Italy will be our point of reference um, here. Paul said he couldn't stay with Timothy in Ephesus because he had to go to the region of Macedonia. And so we're going to put that up there. That's the region of Macedonia. And now Ephesus. That block. You see that? Did that pop up? Was it big enough for you? So that's where Ephesus is. Paul couldn't go stay in Ephesus. He had to go over to the big black circle, which is Macedonia. And now he's writing a letter to a new fella, Titus. Lots of ministry is going on, not just in one spot. And he sends Titus to Crete, which we have here for you as well. And there's Crete. So you see the part of the world where we're at and what we're doing and what we're looking at here. We know that Paul was with Titus for a period of time in Crete. Look at verse 5 of our book. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and, and so on and so forth. But Paul had been with Titus before, but had to go somewhere. Here we go. All right, had to go somewhere and be somewhere. And so he leaves Titus there. And this book, again, is the instructions for Titus. This is what you're supposed to do when you are there. 
Last point, if you're building a timeline, I gave you some years. The book of Acts, chapter 25, it, end, it starts in chapter 25. It ends with Paul sitting in prison. You remember when Paul was back in Jerusalem and other places, he got into it with the Jewish leaders, and he was getting the runaround, and finally Paul says, class, he says, I appeal to Caesar. This is ridiculous. Let him, and if he wants to kill me, then he can kill me, but I'm tired of playing these games. I've been sitting here for two years waiting for trials. Send me. And so he sent to Rome, and he's sitting in some sort of a prison. It could have been house arrest. There in Rome. Well, that's how the book of Acts comes to an end. Following that release from his prison stint, Paul and Titus go to Crete, and they do ministry there on the island. And then, and the order could be slightly reversed, but it doesn't matter. And then he connects with Timothy, and he sends him to Ephesus, while Paul goes to Macedonia. All of those things are happening right as the book of Acts is coming to a close. Paul is going to again get arrested. That's not in the book of Acts. That happens around the year 67, and that'll be when Paul is executed. All right, but those events are not recorded for us in the book of Acts, but you see that the book of Titus and the events of Titus, it occurs just as the book of Acts has ended and just before Paul's arrested again. He sends Titus to Crete. Now, Crete is, was not a deserted, tiny little island or anything like that. It was smaller. It's the size of roughly square mileage. It's the size of the state of Delaware, and that's tiny, sure, when you compare it to Texas or something like that, but it's still pretty big. There's a lot of land. It's about 3,000 square miles of land on the island of Crete. And it wasn't a deserted island. For hundreds of years leading up to the Apostle Paul, there was anywhere between 90 and 100 cities, significant cities, maybe not New York City, but sizable population centers on the island there of Crete. It's about 160 miles wide. Um, from left to right, it's about anywhere from 7 to 30 miles from north to south. It's a big area of land, and it was, we know from historical record, it was quite heavily populated when Paul and Titus went to that area of land. And Paul gives now, so please don't think there's like 11 people on the island. There's hundreds and thousands of people on the island. And so Titus, at the instructions of the Apostle Paul, is given two responsibilities for there. They're found in verse 5. It says, now this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what I, what, excuse me, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That word, put what remained into order, uh, we'll talk about it more next time we're together, but it's a word for a doctor setting a broken arm or, or something like that. It was out of place. It wasn't looking, I don't know if you ever had that happen. It's awful, um, where they break your arm again, essentially. And you're like, what are you doing? Leave it. I, I don't mind the pump. It's okay. You know, whatever. But put what uh, remained into order. So that's the first responsibility. The second one is to appoint elders in every town. Now, if that sounds similar to what Timothy was called to do, that's because it is. That's what Timothy was to do in Ephesus. This is what Titus is to do in Crete. Now, what does that look like? Well, that's what the rest of the book's going to tell us. But before we get that, let's start with the intro. That was all my intro. So <laughs> technically, that doesn't count against our time together this morning. All right. 
Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus. He'll go on from there. Paul does what was very common in that day in letter writing, and he begins with his name and his title, if you will. He says, Paul, and his title, his position, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we tend to begin our letters with dear Sally or dear so-and-so. I don't know who the Sally lady is, but she's around a lot. I talk about her a lot. Dear so-and-so, and then at the end, we sign off with our name and perhaps give our credentials there. Well, they did it differently then. And you look at every one of Paul's letters, 12, 13 of them or so, 13, I think, in the New Testament. He begins with his name, a little title, a greeting, and then the person that he's writing to. And so he, he follows the same formula here. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I so appreciate this about the apostle Paul. Because so often, what do we do? We throw around our credentials. We establish right from the beginning that I'm more important than you, and you need to listen to me. And so if that were what Paul was doing, he would begin with by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, now shut your mouth, sit down, and listen. But instead, Paul begins with the, his credentials, and he pulls out the servant credential, which is not what a lot of people would pull out. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. On top of that, Paul uses lots of different types of servants, if you will. Paul uses the word which described the lowest of Greek of servants of the day. The Greek word for the lowest of servants of the day. This is the new guy that just got hired and is working there and has the most crummy of jobs. That's the word that Paul uses to describe himself. He says, I'm just a lowly servant of Jesus Christ. Is how he thinks of himself and how he describes himself. Yes, he was an apostle. Yes, he was one that was appointed by God. Yes, he had lots of responsibility and the authority that came with that particular position. But Paul never forgot the reality that I am simply a servant, a servant of the Lord. And he calls himself that. And that speaks of his continual submission to God for whatever it is that God might have for him, where he might send me, what he wants me to do. I'm his servant. And he sends me and I go and I do it. Now, at the same time, we know that he was also an apostle. And that meant that he had a role and a responsibility that was entrusted by God to him as well. And so that's his title as well. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, the word apostle, we know what it means as far as the position is concerned, but it was actually a Greek word that was in existence before official apostles were even named. And so it's a, since it's a Greek word, it has a meaning. It's a word which means sent one. Sometimes it was used to describe a person that was an, a messenger. So you could be hired to be an apostle of a particular business, and you would run messages to another location. And so an apostle, in the strict meaning of the word, is a sent one or a messenger. The apostle Paul was a sent one. He had a message to deliver. And the remainder of verse 1 described what it was he was sent to do and the message that he was called to deliver. 
And that's why, you, if you look there, I don't know if I underlined it on the screen above us here. That's why the word for is underlined. He's a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ for, this is his purpose, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That's what he was sent to do. That was his responsibility. The message he was called to deliver in describing his mission, Paul begins with by referring to the elect and saying for the, by saying for the sake of God's elect. Now there's a whole lot of debate and in some cases argument over this idea of election and free will. People break fellowship over the concept and the idea and you're not a real Christian if you don't believe what I believe on this particular topic of the, uh, the doctrine of election or the doctrine of free will? Does, God, uh, does the Bible teach that God chooses those who believe? Or does it teach that those who believe choose that they will believe? And the answer, honestly, and I'm not being a jerk, the answer is yes. The Bible teaches that God chooses, and the Bible teaches that we choose. And you say, you're just taking an easy way out. Yes, I am. And we have a lot to do today. We have baby dedications, and we have communion. <laughs> all right. But in reality, as you read through the scripture, you can come across a passage and be like, oh, I absolutely, I knew it. I'm going to tell those, what are they, Arminianists, I'm going to tell them they're wrong. Then you read another passage, ooh, maybe I'm the one who's wrong. Because you read it, because it does communicate this idea of man's responsibility, woman's responsibility, and yet God's uh, election and, and choosing. Those two ideas, they seem contrary ideas that can't exist side by side. You've got to pick one or the other. And I remember even saying that when I was a young believer and we were in the back of somebody's car and I was arguing, we were arguing about election of free will. And I looked, these are opposite ideas. One is right, the other's wrong. And the older brother was like, yeah, you're, you're cute or whatever. <laughs> but here's what we know. God's got it all figured out. He knows how to make these two things that seem contradictory work in harmony with one another, and so he does. And so I'm going to just essentially leave it at that because, and the reason is because, and you, there's plenty of books out there. Read, study, formulate your opinion on this idea. Become a Berean of the word yourself. But Paul's point here is not so much about election and free will. His point here isn't to launch into a discussion of election versus free will. His point is that there was a calling on his life. He was an apostle. He was sent. There was a calling on his life to reach the elect. And we would call that, we might just simply call that as evangelism. To get the gospel out there, to speak it into people's lives so that people can have an opportunity to respond to the call of God. That was Paul, one of Paul's missions, to reach the elect. And then, when they were reached, to teach the elect. And we would call that discipleship. And so what Paul was sent to do as an apostle was to preach, and that is evangelism, and to teach, and that is discipleship. And that's the ministry of the pastor, Titus, Timothy, whomever, and it's the ministry of the local body of believers, the church. A good, healthy church is going to be doing lots of things, but they need to be preaching and teaching the word of God. They need to get the message out there and then ground the people in the word of God. And then God will stir up and raise up all these other things that they're going to do as well. But if it's not doing those two things, then Paul is missing his ministry, what he was called to be doing. And so would that church. And that idea, it lines up perfectly 
with the instructions that Jesus gave to his earliest disciples. You remember how in the book of Mark, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. It's quoted similarly in the book of Matthew. There we read this. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, preaching the gospel, teaching the word of God, reach them with the good news that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness of sins and then ground them in the faith through the teaching of the word of God. And that, that was Paul's mission. It was going to become Titus's mission. It was Timothy's mission. And honestly, it is our mission as well. Preach the word, teach the word. Now, Paul adds a statement there regarding that knowledge of the truth. And it's the statement that accord, it says, which accords with godliness. Now, earlier I said there's a lot of similarities between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Here's, where, here's the, one of the biggest differences between those books. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul emphasizes sound doctrine. Here in the book of Titus, he exercised, I don't know if there's a phrase commonly for it, but sound behavior. Now, that doesn't mean that sound doctrine wasn't important on the island of Crete and to the people of Crete but that they had a particular problem. They had lots of head knowledge, but somehow it didn't get from their head to their heart to their feet. That there was an unsound behavior that was common among those that named Christ on the island of Crete, and that's going to be one of his key responsibilities. Titus, that is, is to teach the truth that accords with godliness. It was an area uh, that the believers in Crete especially needed attention with was this practical piety, living out your faith, walking in godliness. Now, the word godliness, it could be translated God-likeness, and I think that kind of helps a little bit with an understanding of it. It's to be like God. Now, I'm not talking about the New Age idea of being like God, and I'm not talking about what Satan said to Eve there in the garden, you know, if you do this, you could be like God. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this idea of living your life in such a way, responding to circumstances in such a way that when people look at your life, they think of God. That's the godliness that I'm referring to and the godlikeness that I'm talking about. And sadly, that wasn't the case with the many believers on the island of Crete. Just look down for a moment. Look at verse 16. And I say for a moment, we'll come back to it next week, I hope. But there it says that these believers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And then he goes on, he gives some strong terminology. They may not have even been believers at all, but they were convinced they were. There's a unique emphasis in this book of the need to possess a faith, a faith that demonstrates itself in our lives. Look at chapter 2 of the book, verses 11 and 12. There, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. When God comes into a person's life through Jesus Christ, through that initial act of belief, there is a transformation, the Bible says, of nature that takes place inside of that person. Paul would write about it in 2 Corinthians. He would say, they are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's a transformation of nature that takes place in us. Now, what remains 
is a walk of obedience now as we are empowered by that new transformation of nature. And so then we begin, we receive and we begin to apply the truth of God's word, God's word that accords with godliness. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So Paul says, nobody answered. Is anybody with me? Does that kind of make sense? We can go back. Today we're going to be looking at the book of Titus. It's a great book. You're going to love it. So Paul, he lays it out right from the beginning with, and then he goes on, and this is really his greeting, but he says so much important stuff in the greeting. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages have began. Now I'll remind you that the word hope, we often use it as wishful thinking. I really hope this happens today, or this happens this week, or this year. But in the Bible, the word hope, it refers to a confident expectation. So Paul doesn't say, like, let's live our lives according with godliness, and hopefully we'll get to eternal life. What he is saying, we live our lives according to the truth that accords with godliness, confidently expecting the day is coming where I'm going to be in heaven with my Savior. It's a confident expectation. That's what biblical hope is. An anticipation founded not on wishful thinking, but on a promise and confidence in the promise. And what's the confidence in? The one who promises God who never lies. That's Paul's hope. He says it's the hope of eternal life. I just mentioned it, and of course we think, when we think of eternal life, we think of heaven. We think about when we come to the end of our days and we enter into the joy of the Lord as the Bible talks about it here. But in reality, when the Bible speaks about eternal life, sometimes it uses the terms abundant life. And, and that kind of helps us with the picture here. But when the Bible speaks of eternal life, it's speaking of a life that is birthed in the heart of the believer the moment that they begin to believe. So it's not something we will attain to, we will get to, we'll cross over into eternal life. When you become a believer, that's already birthed with inside of your heart. And that's why I kind of like that phrase, abundant life. This is how Jesus described it, John 17. He says, and this is eternal life, or abundant life, that they know you and the only true, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says that as part of his great high priestly prayer. He's speaking to his father, and he says, and this is eternal life, that they, the believers, would know you and me. They'd be an intimacy of relationship. Again, not something that begins when we come to the end of our days, but something that begins when we begin to believe. Abundant life, birthed into our hearts. There's another place, John chapter 10, where Jesus said this. He said, the thief... We know that in the context of the story, that's the devil, comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life abundantly. Eternal life born within our hearts. And if Titus does his job well on the island of Crete, then that hope of eternal life, that abundance of life, will resound throughout the island in the hearts of those believers. He talks about the hope of eternal life. Going on in verse 3, he says, And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Four quick points I want to bring out in that verse as we bring our time to a close. The first, Paul here, he's referring to his faith. That's what he introduced in the opening verses. And now he talks about that faith being proper, at the proper time manifested. 
The Christian faith came into the world at a time when it was uniquely possible for its message to rapidly spread. And so in this natural sense of thing, things, all of the parameters that would cause it to go forth even more effectively were in place. And so, for instance, there was a common language pretty much throughout the world. Today, it's kind of like English, where you can go a lot of places in the world and somebody in the town knows English and you, know, you can get by. Well, then it was Greek. Greek was the common language throughout the known world. And so they had the ability to go on mission trips anywhere and communicate the gospel message in Greek throughout the vast Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had pretty much, a, there, were, there was no like barren land throughout the world, or at least what we call the known world. The Roman Empire had already been there, and so it was relatively easy to find a place to go where people would be, and you could communicate the gospel. They, the Romans prided themselves in, they built roads and uh, systems of navigation, sailing or whatever, and they ensured that the boats would be safe out there and the roads would... Uh, people could transport on them, and so people could go anywhere they wanted to go. There was a path that led there, and they could go and they could preach the gospel. And we know with uh, what they call Pax Romana, there was such a peace over the earth uh, that as long as you didn't offend the Romans, everything was pretty safe, and nobody wanted to mess with the Romans. And so we could go places, and we'll be fine, relatively safe, until the Romans decided to kill the Christians, that is. But before that, the gospel could go forth. So naturally speaking, the conditions were excellent for this new message of the gospel to go forth. We speak here at the proper time. Also, you have this idea of manifested. Maybe your version used a different word. Maybe it uses the word revealed or brought to light or made evident. There's some of the different versions that are out there of that word. But in the ESV, it uses the word manifested. Again, referring back to that faith, the faith that at the proper time was revealed to the world or brought to light. That the message of the gospel, the plan of the gospel, it wasn't just recently thought up in some strategy session between the, the members of the Godhead. This was before the, the world, the foundation of the world itself was laid. This was the plan of God and it was going to be accomplished. And now it is at the proper time revealed, promised before the ages began, Titus said there in verse 2. Old Testament believers, people like David and others, Old Testament believers, they had a somewhat, honestly, hazy idea of what life after death looked like. They, had, they knew it was there. They had a sense of it. But as far as the clarity of what it means and what it looks like and, and all of that, it was lacking a bit. Well, that vagueness disappeared when the gospel was revealed. And brought to light. Now it makes perfect sense. And it's straight out there. And any a little child can understand it. Here's what Paul said in the book of 2 Timothy. He said, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Nor of me as prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace. Notice which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I am appointed a preacher. The plan of God, now revealed. And that, the last point is how, in his word, through preaching. And Paul says in verse 3 of our passage, at the proper time manifested in his word through preaching. 
the word of God, and preaching. Preaching is the means by which this mystery is revealed. It's not necessarily written in the sky or, or anything like that. There's not going to be necessarily voices that are happening here and there. God could do any of those things, and perhaps he has. But the normal means, the common means by which people can come to the place of understanding the gospel is through the preaching of the word of God and the message of the gospel. And it's not so much in the giftedness of the preacher that it goes forth and that people are convinced. And if we can get some good preachers, we can convince some people. It's the message that is conveyed through the preaching. And Paul knew that, and he operated on that belief that preaching is the way that God, his eternal work, meets people today. It's the way that God's word is made evident. It's manifest. It is revealed to others. Again, there's many other things that a good church is almost certainly going to be doing. But it must be about evangelism and the teaching of the word of God. And Paul says of all of those things, properly, proper time manifested in his word through preaching, he, he ends with by saying, with which I have been entrusted. This wasn't Paul's message. He didn't sit down, come up with it, he didn't change it for different cultures or whatever. It was given to him with a responsibility. All right, I'm entrusting you with this. Now go and share that with others. Paul was, that word, that, the word that describes that in the Bible that is used, it's the word steward. He was a manager of these things. He didn't own the store. He was a manager of the store. He didn't get to go changing all kinds of things around because he didn't like how the owner wanted to do it. His job was to carry out the owner's wishes and the owner's direction. He doesn't go changing his message or anything like that. The scripture says in another place that the most important quality of one of these stewards one of these managers, is that they be found faithful. And so Paul saw himself as a steward of the mysteries of God. He continues in verse 4. And trust me, Dan, this is it. We're, we're wrapping it up. I know you're wondering, are we ever getting a communion? He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In many ways, that's Paul's prayer for Titus. We know that it was written to him. We talked a little about who he was and so on. But his prayer for Titus as he gets started in this greeting is grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The King James Version, the New King James Version, it adds the word mercy. I, I haven't quite figured out why that, those two versions do and others don't. Um, I'll take it. You want to give me mercy too? I'll take some mercy as well. Grace, mercy, and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul's prayer for, Tim, for Titus. And, I, and I, I think if he thought of us, that would be his prayer for us. And so certainly that's my prayer for each of us, is that the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the peace of God would reign in every one of our hearts as we study this book and as we go from here every single Sunday as we go out uh, and walk with Christ, is that God's grace, mercy, and peace would reign in, amongst us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. We're going to bring our worship team. We'll celebrate communion together. Father, we want to thank you for this uh, intro letter, this intro to the letter to Titus. I'm grateful, Lord, for this guy, a man that comes from a pagan society, had no relationship with you, and, let, and yet the mystery of salvation was revealed to his undeserving heart 
perhaps through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his preaching. And Lord, the same way that you worked in his life, that you, you worked in a lot of us in this room, our lives, you opened up our hearts to believe. You revealed to us that there was a need for a Savior, that there was nothing that we could do to satisfy that need but to relinquish ourselves to you. You saved Titus, as you have so many of us. And then as this fellow just made himself available to you, you've opened up opportunities. He proved himself faithful. You've opened up more opportunities. He moved in those areas, bringing him to this particular spot. And Lord, I don't know if we'll ever be called to pastor a hundred churches on some island somewhere, but certainly we can make ourselves available to you and you have work for us to do for your glory to advance the kingdom of God. And I think that's the desire of a lot of us in this room, if not all of us. And so Lord, may your grace, your mercy, and your peace be over each of us. We ask in Jesus' name.